life together. That's what they did in the New Testament when the church was first birthed. We're going to read about that today in Acts 2, verse 42, and look at some things that were going on that were dynamic. Somehow along the way, the church has kind of lost that dynamic. Uh, There are people go to church and they see it for the first time. They're not Christians and they think, man, these people aren't even happy. Why Why would I go here? And nobody greets them. Nobody seems to be aware that they're there. And so they move on. Well, the church, if that's the way it's functioning, no wonder people don't want to go to church these days. There's a preacher who kind of felt that same way about church, that it wasn't working um, before he really committed his life. His name is Mark Driscoll. And you may have heard of him. He's in Seattle. He's one of the most influential pastors in America now, so he had a little bit of a turn. But listen to what he wrote before he really committed his life to Christ. He said, Occasionally, I would drop into church out of guilt, but always walk away feeling as if I'd wasted an hour with an ex-girlfriend. I continued reading the Bible, Bible rather, and kept seeing that the New Testament was written by pastors of churches to churches about church life. And I was convicted that there's no such thing as a personal, isolated relationship with Jesus apart from his often ugly bride, the church, meaning it doesn't always look like it should. Acknowledging my disinterest in the church as little more than arrogant judging, he says, I decided to seek out a church where I could obey the scriptures and the command to go to church. That's in Hebrews 10, 25. Place myself under the authority of pastors. That's in Hebrews 13, 17. Use my abilities to build up the church. That's in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Partake of communion in the church and give my tithe in the church. I was finally starting to realize Jesus died not just for me, but for his church, which I was part of by his death and resurrection. I then had to decide where to go to church, which was a frightening prospect, he says. Well, he has become a pastor and brought the life that is mentioned that we're talking about in the New Testament today into a city that's pretty full of darkness called Seattle, and he's had an incredible impact with about 15,000 people who are attending that church these days. Mars Hill, you may have heard of that church. He went back to some basics, and we need to go back to basics if we're going to get it right, and here they are in Acts 2.42. Now remember, dynamic church, mega church on its first day. 3,120 people, 120 pray in the upper room, 3,000 get saved when Peter preaches. 3,120, they're meeting in the temple courtyards all together, they're coming in. There's only one place in Jerusalem, those courtyards that would hold that many, and they would go to that spot. And then they would meet house to house, but here's what it says they were committed to, and this is what it takes to be a dynamic church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We're going to talk about those things for our lives and our church, his church today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd speak to every individual heart. Lord, we're all in different places, and yet you love us uh, unconditionally. You love us so much that you give us your truth that would set us free. You won't make us do the right thing, but you'll share the right thing and give us an opportunity. And if and when we respond, Lord, you meet us in amazing ways. So I pray, Lord, that you'd help our hearts to respond, and I pray, Lord, that you'd meet us in that dynamic way. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at four things that come out of that verse that made for this amazingly dynamic church right from the beginning. 
First, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says it right there in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One of the things we need to ask ourselves is if our faith is working right, we will have a hunger for God's word. So ask yourself, do I have a hunger for God's word? In the early church, they did. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that's what the apostles were teaching, and they were bringing his words. Now, granted, they did not have the New Testament writings that we have at the moment that they were teaching, but here's what the apostles had, because they were about to write the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they had uh, a, a, a Jesus that they walked with, a vision and teaching that had been transferred from Jesus to their hearts. They were eyewitnesses and close friends with Jesus, and people were gathering, hearing the teachings of Jesus through the people, the 11, that he chose to transfer that message to his children. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and these men had been with Jesus. First-hand knowledge of that one who'd come from heaven. I want to talk for just a moment. It's, it's, it's a quick teaching on what was the criteria for these books being accepted as inspired by God. There's 27 books in the New Testament. It's called the canon of scriptures. <clears throat> Why was it these 27 that were chosen and how were they chosen? I think if, if you're an intellectual or, or bright person, I, I think it's fair to ask these questions. Well, here's the reasons that these 27 books were chosen. Number one, the most important factor was the authorship by the apostles or a close associate of the apostle. Well, this limited those writings to the first 100 years because the apostles all died off in those first 100 years, right? But only those who had witnessed the events or had recorded eyewitness testimony could have their writings considered as holy scriptures. That was one of the requirements to see if it would become a New Testament book. Another, they couldn't contradict with the previously revealed uh, Old Testament. That's what we came to call it. But if it contradicted, if any book that was written, see there were several written in that era by people that weren't accepted into the New Testament because they didn't meet uh, uh, the scrutiny. And one of the things they didn't meet is that they weren't matching up with the vision revealed in the Old Testament. So if they didn't match up with the Old Testament, they couldn't get in. The third was, and and, and remember, they weren't even voted on uh, because there there were hundreds of ministers that eventually came together, and I'll read about that in a moment, that voted to accept these Um, books into the New Testament, these 27 books. But even before that, nearly 400 years, these were the books that were recognized by the church and being taught by the church, so broad, universal, widespread usage and acceptance by the early church was a requirement. So basically, the whole church was bearing witness that the Holy Spirit had anointed these books and it was blessing their lives. So here's a, a, a respected theologian, F.F. F. Bruce, who said this, the first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were held by North Africa, I'm sorry, were held in North Africa at Hippo Regis in 393. So this is 400 years A.D. and at Carthage in 397. Now these guys were Catholics because in that, at that time there's only one church, Catholic If you're wondering what it means, it means the universal church. So there weren't all these denominations that we have today. There was just one church moving forward. And and hundreds of ministers came together in 393 and 397, looking at those things that I just spoke, and they bore witness that these were the books that should go in, that these were the ones that the Holy Spirit had led the people to, and they were affirming that. And and, uh, so uh, Carthage at 397, but 
what these councils did was not impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of these communities. For 16 centuries, that's 1600 years, there has been no significant controversy within Christianity regarding the extent of the New Testament canon. Christians are on solid ground in affirming that these 27 books belong in the New Testament and that other ancient writings were excluded for good reason. So, the testimony of time, the the Holy Spirit, the, the eyewitnesses, and these books were put into the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scriptures inspired by God. So the eyewitnesses, these, these apostles, not only walked with him and they heard it, but when they wrote it down, it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says it's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. So the word of God, we like, we like to have what the Bible calls itching ears today and we like people to affirm us in everything. Well, if you affirm your three-year-old in every bit of bad behavior they, they are uh, portraying, it's not going to go well in their lives. I remember once that I hit my sister with the horseshoe, and my dad had, I threw it at her. It wasn't a ringer, but it was a point. I, I, was, I was close. And my dad took me aside and said, son, you can't throw horseshoes at, at your sister. And he, he spanked me, and, and, and I told him, dad, when I get back, if that's love, when I get big, you're getting all that love right back. I, I didn't quite understand But he had to spank me and he had to tell me it was wrong and incorrect behavior because I would be hurting my sister and others if that behavior wasn't corrected. Well, the Bible does the same thing. It's to correct us. It's to lead us. It's to help us. It's to make life good for you. And not only you, but everybody around you. And so that's what the word of God is for. God uses it, it says in verse 17, to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So let me talk about uh, what they were devoted to. They weren't devoted to teaching. What were they devoted to? To the apostles' teaching. Now, I don't want you to be devoted to my teaching or my preaching. As a matter of fact, I want you to be devoted to Jesus Christ. Um, My understanding of the Bible is not inerrant, but the Bible's inerrant. Now, I really feel like I've got it all right, that I've really worked it out, but everybody has a blind spot, right? And a blind spot, I wish I knew what mine was, but I don't because... It's a blind spot, all right? So, but nobody has it perfect, but the Word of God has it perfect. It's our interpretation that gets messed up. Now, this is why you need to be in the Word every day. I'm gonna do my best. The Bible says that I should study to show myself approved, and I study before I get up here, and I pray. The Bible says that I should rightly divide the Word, and I do my best to to find the, the truth of what the Scriptures say and present it to you. But you're not to be devoted to my interpretation of the Bible. you're to be devoted and I'm to be devoted. What I'm trying to bring you is not my teaching. I'm doing my best to bring you the revelation that came under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the apostles. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching. I'm I'm not trying to, you know, get you to uh, uh, love me less or believe in me less. I'm trying to get you to see what's really important and it's what's written here. That's what we're trying to get to. We want to get it right. One night about 50 years ago, a young man was experiencing some doubt about the Bible. So he cried out to God in prayer and said, oh God, I do not understand it all, but I'm willing to believe it and willing to obey it. That young man was Billy Graham. And later he said this, I discovered the secret that changed my ministry. I stopped trying to prove that the Bible was true. I had settled it in my mind by this time, that it was. 
And this faith was conveyed to the audiences that I preached to. Over and over again, Billy Graham said, I found myself saying, the Bible says, or God's word says. I felt as though I were merely a voice through which the Holy Spirit was speaking. I found that the Bible became a flame in my hands. I love that thought. The flame that melted away unbelief in the hearts of people and moved them to decide for Christ. The word became like a hammer breaking up stony hearts and shaping them into the likeness of God. And that's what the word of God does when we stay on it. But nowadays, I'll tell you what makes me really sad. I see it happening. We are believing largely what we believe about Jesus and the Bible today from conversations that we hear on sitcoms, movies, and from politicians. And they don't even come back to the word of God. They just say, well, I think that Jesus, da, this. Well, let's, let's find out what it says in the word. Let's, Republican, Democrat, I don't care. I want the word, the word of God. And, and, and I tell you, I don't want people who don't live it telling me what it's all about, who don't know him telling me who he is. How can they know unless someone tell them the Bible says when they, when they don't truly know him? Don't get your interpretation from the Bible from people who don't even read it or truly believe it. They just interpret it when it's to their advantage for whatever thing they're doing. But we're looking at the whole counsel of God. We're trying to find out what it says and follow it. And this is what it says to preachers in 2 Timothy and teachers of the word, chapter 4, verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, not your opinion, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. And this is what the Bible does. It corrects, it rebukes, and encourages with great patience and careful instruction. That's what God wants preachers and teachers to do with the Bible. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministries. That was spoken to the young pastor Timothy by Paul and it's written down as the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. That's what preachers and teachers are supposed to do. Not give to itching ears, but preach the truth. There's correction, rebuke, instruction for the good of people to know who Jesus really is. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. Some of you have heard me say, I did not want to be a preacher. Not only did I not want to, I really bad did not want to be a preacher. My dad was a preacher, and I loved my dad, but it was kind of a hard life growing up in a pastor's home uh, for, for me and, and, and for my brothers and sisters, I think, too. So I thought, well, I'll serve him, but I, I just don't want to do that. I remember, because I was raised in one of those Pentecostal fellowships where you put your tennis shoes on to get a good grip on the wall, you know, that's uh, just an inter- interesting experience, and and, and they'd lay hands on you and pray for you, and they'd hurt you sometimes, you know, when they, when they did their stuff. And they'd say, man, would Jesus really hurt me? But, but I remember there was some good stuff going on, too. I remember two or three times someone would prophesy and say, you're going to be a preacher. And each time it was said, it hurt my heart because I didn't want it to be true. And then I remember being 12 years old in the car with my dad, my dad saying to me, just the two of us driving down the road, Modesto, California, he said, son, the Lord spoke to me and told me you're going to pastor a large church. And I said to him, just right on the spot, dad, I don't want to be a pastor. And my dad, with all of his sensitivity, said, son, I didn't ask if you want to be a pastor. I told you, the Lord told me you're going to be. 
okay, even if I don't want to? Well, when I surrendered, because I, I was Jonah for a while, man, I was running from a call. And that was part of my struggle as a prodigal. And um, I, I remember just surrendering these things one by one. I surrendered that I wouldn't be after money my whole life long. It wouldn't be about money ever. It wouldn't be about making money. I surrendered that I would be preaching the Bible that people wouldn't like and sometimes they wouldn't like me because I preached it. I had, I had to count the cost on that and take up that cross. Surrendering to those things and then I said, okay, Lord, if this is what you called me to, eventually I said, I'm in. And when I was in, I mean, I, I decided that I would preach the word without fear or favor of what men thought. Now, I'm doing my best to do that as, as time goes. In this era, when the word speaks different than what our, when our culture is speaking about homosexuality, when the word speaks uh, different than what our culture says about the only way to be saved, I, I can't go with the culture. I'm not called to do that. I have to go with the word of God and what it says with truth that sets people free. I'm more interested in people getting to heaven than I am people liking me in this moment even. And it's the truth that sets people free. And if we're too afraid to share the truth, how will they know unless someone tells them? So as teachers and preachers, we should be able to say along with Paul, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy. One thing I'll tell you is you can't do what I'm doing on your own energy because you won't last long. I've tried it at times. It doesn't work. You can't live for Jesus on your own energy. But if we have his energy, which so powerfully works in us, then we get this done. <clears throat> they were devoted to the apostles' teaching to the word of God. And that's what we're devoted to. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship together. <clears throat> Now we're talking four things that'll make for a dynamic relationship with Christ. You can have a, a, a relationship that has some goodness in it with Jesus without these four things. I don't believe you can have the best relationship that he wants you to have with skipping any one of these. I just don't. Um, he'll love you, you can be saved, but there'll be a struggle, there'll be some hurts, there'll be some wounds that happen if we don't find these things in balance. And here's one of them. Devote yourselves to fellowship with one another. Acts 2.42, another part of that scripture says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, we just talked about that, and to the fellowship. That word fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. Koinonia means this, the definition. Having something in common and sharing together. That would be the definition. So what did these believers have in common? Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He died on a cross. He rose again. He's come into our hearts and our lives. The Holy Spirit has, has saved us. We can feel it. There's a dynamic difference in our lives. He's changed our lives. They all felt that. They had that in common. But that wasn't all they had in common. They shared life together. Immediately, they were all in. And we'll talk more about this in the, in the coming weeks. <clears throat> but, but here's what it means to share, they, they, there was a connection that they had with Jesus that brought a connection to one another that was special. They got so close that they were like family. 
It was a real and genuine relationship with Jesus and it became a, a, they became real and genuine relationships with one another, the believers around them. I like, I like what this doctor said. He said, the only kind of fellowship many know in church is after a service when men stand around and ask each other superficial questions. Then they find their wives who are having similar conversations and they go home. <clears throat> But he says, biblical fellowship has the power to revolutionize lives. Masks come off. Conversations get deep. Hearts get vulnerable. Lives are shared. Accountability is invited and tenderness flows. People really do become like brothers and sisters. They shoulder each other's burdens. And unfortunately, that was something that few of the people today experienced growing up in the church in America. So because we have known church as, you know, a fellowship hall with some coffee and some donuts or an event where we get together, we call that fellowship. But that's not what this was. This was way deeper. Did you know that in the New Testament, the word brother occurs over 200 times? When I grew up uh, in that small church, they all called each other brother and sister. And it's, it sounds weird, you know, like these and thou's and brother Russell and sister Russell and and yet, in the New Testament, they, they, it's spoken 200 times. And what it means is, it must mean this, that there's a dynamic that's way deeper than just a normal relationship. It's truly going to a point where you care for one another at the level of good brother and good sister relationships. We need to be there for each other. That's what they were. They were meeting one another's needs in incredible fashion. Not just physical, but emotional and otherwise. When I was hunting with some friends a couple years ago, and by the way, don't worry about the animals when I hunt. No animals have ever been hurt because of me. Don't know what the problem is, but I don't get animals. I actually ran from an elk on one hunting trip, but that's the closest I ever... <clears throat> it was a cow, and she almost ran over me. Um, <clears throat> But I remember one hunting trip up at the coast. We were hunting elk, and I had this white Tahoe. It's gone now. I sold it. Um, but but I, I was driving up on these high coastal mountains, and they were skinny roads, and it was raining like crazy, and we're looking for the animals, and rain can actually help some because it, it masks sound, you know, and so they're pretty good hunting conditions. But But I was a little bit nervous, a wide Tahoe and a narrow road, and and, and it was just hundreds of feet in some places where you could, the car could slip off. And uh, I remember saying to the person with me once, what's that white cross for on the side of the road? And he goes, oh, somebody died here. And I said, why'd they die? And they said, well, you know, the truck fell off the road, skinny, raining. And I go, you mean like this truck and this skinny road where it's raining? <laughs> he goes, yeah, well, it happened right here. So that made me nervous, right? So I'm trying to drive carefully. I took a detour down one road to go into a place to hunt, and when we came back out, I had to back out because I couldn't turn around. Well, I tried to go high, but it was a slippery dirt road, and when I hit the high so side, I started to slide sideways. And there's no tread sideways on those tires, right? So I started moving, and it just kept moving. I couldn't believe it, and I thought, I can't hit the brakes because that'll just send me right in the canyon. I looked down. This is no joke. I'm at the deepest part of that canyon that we could be at, that 200-foot spot, and I'm 100, maybe 150 foot from that white cross that we talked about. We start going over. Now, just my dad and I are in the truck together, 
And I say to dad, oh, oh man, oh man. And I say, we're going, we're going, brace yourself. And we went off the side like this, slid down just barely over and the car stopped like that. To this day, I don't know what stopped that car on that hillside. I believe that it was the Lord. But we're stuck there and it was so sideways that when my dad rolled down the window, he could stand up straight outside the window. The car was, so he's just standing up and he's about to get out. And I said, don't get out, don't get out, dad. Because I, you know, balance could be affected here. And I, I want out too. Let's figure this out before you just jump. So here's the point of the story. Nobody was around anywhere. And at the moment where we get in crisis and we're sideways, these hunters come out of the woodworks. I don't know where they came from, but I will tell you this. They are loyal and courageous, those hunters, and they will help because they jumped in. I mean, in a moment, there were six or seven people. I don't know where they came from. They had straps, and they put one here, and one of them held the door down and said to my dad, jump, and then I scrambled out and dove out the window, and I get out, and there it is, just sitting there, and I think, my gosh, I'm looking at just the underside of the truck on this side. I can't figure out why it didn't go over. They put straps on it. They start pulling it. One of them gets behind the truck and pushes from there downhill. And I said, get out of there. It's just a car. You know, let it go. I mean, they were endangering themselves for us. But they pulled with that strap and they manipulated it. In just a few minutes, they had it up on the road, not a dent in the car. More importantly, not a dent in us. And those guys rescued us in a moment. Do you know in life, you're gonna have some situations where you can't help yourself sometimes, where crisis happens. In a moment, you don't know what to do. You're vulnerable. And when it's working right, this fellowship thing is deeper than talking in the lobby over some donuts. It's deeper than a cup of coffee. It's people coming out to care for you, to rescue you, to help you. That happened this week in the church. And when I see something good happen, and I like to speak of it, There's a single mom with four children who just moved into the area and she started coming to church here. She's new, so she doesn't really know people. At 3 a.m. recently, she had a medical emergency and had to go to the hospital in in an ambulance or be taken to the hospital. And one of our pastors received a phone call from the police early in the morning saying she needed help. Well, there was a nanny that could stay overnight, but here's what the church did, and this is how the church is supposed to work. The next day, when that woman couldn't care for her children because she was uh, having physical difficulty, one of the women of this church took two of the toddlers for two whole days and half a day camping with, with, with them as well. The singles, and that was the group that really rallied here. I'm proud of you guys. Way to go. They took the older two boys camping with them on their trip for four days. Someone brought two boxes of diapers and wipes. Another woman cleaned the family's apartment and is doing shifts of uh, childcare this week. Another woman in the church helped get the first grader enrolled in school because mom couldn't. Another woman from our church and her mother were making meals and volunteered for childcare as well. Someone from the church staff helped with the process of getting the two kids enrolled at Horizon. Another woman was picking up uh, three of those children and moving them around from school to apartment wherever they needed to be. And finally, that that woman's mother was able to get here and and help out. But that is the church in action. That is sharing. That is fellowship. That is a deeper level. And that's what God wants. Ecclesiastes 4.9. 
And I, I just want to say, you don't have trouble today, and I'm very happy for you in that. I don't want any trouble for you. But here's what I know. Jesus said in John 16, 16 33, in this world you will have trouble. Those are the words of Jesus. They're, they're, they're not a lack of faith. It's Jesus for God's sake, literally. He said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world, but you're going to have trouble. So today it's not you that had the, the trouble, but tomorrow or the next day it could be. And doesn't it sound great to have some people who would know you, who love you, who are around you, who'd spring into action for you? Because we're all going to need it at times. Ecclesiastes 4.9, I mean, it's so hard to be alone. It says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So in the New Testament, they were sharing and meeting one another's needs, helping one another financially and otherwise. I have to stop here and talk about life groups because they start up in just a couple weeks. Life groups, about 30 small groups where there's 12 to 16 adults that will meet in groups. And here's what they do. They do really some elements that are all through this passage right here. They, they, they study the apostles' teaching or the word of God. They have fellowship and, 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 and food that's involved where they can enjoy and just stand, stand around. But then they have prayer and everything goes to a deeper level. Here's what I would say about hard times if you're in a small group. It would almost be impossible for someone not to know if you're faithful in your small group. Now you could come here I mean, it's happened. People get upset at us because there's trouble in their lives and we didn't even know. But if you're connected to a small group, that means you're connected to people. And those people love you. And here's what I'd say about a small group. If they're really nerdy, awkward people, go to another one, all right? I mean, if you, if you don't like them, that's fine. Jesus had the 12, he had the three, he had the one. But somewhere, there's some people that are just like you. We got a great group of nerds over here and a great group of athletes over here. And Man, we got it all. Just find the right one. We got groups that have nerds, athletes, and, 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 and businessmen all together, and they're awesome. Just find the one that works for you. But here's what I would say. Find a connection that's closer. Now, now, you don't have to be in a life group. You can be in a small group that has the same dynamics. But you can't skip this part because you'll come to a portion of your life that you're, you're hurt or, or wounded, and, 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 the, and the body can't work because you're not, you, you're not really connected to it. So people don't know. And maybe even more importantly, we need you. We need you to be there for people. People are hurting and you can provide the help. And listen, I know we're busy, but one of the things that the word shows us when we get into it is we're too busy because we can't even do God's work anymore. When we're so busy with the things of this world that we can't be concerned about the things that God tells us to be concerned about, and that's others, it's not working right. And God gave you this so it would bring abundant life to you and to others. There's strength in numbers. I say this, snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them get together, they can stop traffic. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> you and I don't have a lot of power by ourselves, but there's a dynamic that happens when we all come together and follow Jesus where we become a mighty army and it works right. They were devoted to fellowshipping with one another. Third thing, they were devoted to the breaking of bread together. Now, um, it's, 
it's quite often taught that this is talking about communion, but I don't think that's primarily what this passage is talking about. I think secondarily it can be used for that, and that's fine. It's certainly not opposed to that. But we, we, we think of communion as a breaking of, of bread. And here's what it says. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of the breaking of bread. So let's talk about that for a moment. Because this is one of the, I mean, it's important enough to be mentioned as one of the key things when they started the early church. Um, so, so the breaking of bread, the, in, in those days, the culture, and here's why, here's why I think it's talking about having meals together. Because three times in this passage, in just a few short verses, it talks about having meals together. So that's what I think the context is. And, and um, so they're devoted to breaking bread. In those days, when they made bread, it wasn't soft like the bread we have. They wanted it to last a little longer, so they made it hard. And so they used this terminology in their culture for having dinner together. They broke bread together in homes. They literally, the bread was so hard, they break it off and they give peace and break it off because and, and, and their bread was harder than ours is today. And they were devoted to getting together this way Sharing meals, and meals that were shared played an important role in the life of the early church. And our church picnic will show you next week. If you feed them, they will come. There's, there's, there's something about food when we get together that's cool. And, and I, I think it's important that, uh, though I think it can happen in restaurants, and that's cool, this talks about in homes. They invited people into their homes. And... and um, Stop worrying about if your home's clean or if it's nice enough or whatever and just start thinking about this, this word of God that says, hey, have people over and, and be with them because there's something of a dynamic happens when we're together and I think this has to do with enjoyment of life, that you're enjoying life with people, that you're laughing with them, that you talk about a truth somewhere in the scripture that means something to you and there's a dynamic that's really, really powerful that is displayed when we come together in this way. So let's look at a Gallup study poll for just a moment. Group Publishing um, commissioned Gallup to do this poll, and here's what they found in this survey. Uh, Close friendships in the church, uh, people with close friendships in the church are very satisfied with their congregation and less likely to leave their place of worship. So poll revealed that when people really had good friends in the church, they were much happier with the church and left a lot less often. Church members who have best friends are 21% more likely to report attending at least once a week. So people attended more if they had best friends at the church. 26% more likely to report having a strong and more active faith in God when they had good friends in the church. And then they got to, literally in the survey, some statistics about eating together. This is on the screen for you. This is the Gallup poll commissioned by, again, group publishing, and it revealed 77% of highly satisfied members have eaten a meal with fellow congregants who are not members of their family at some point over the last year. 62% of those who eat meals together report regularly spending time in prayer and worship versus 49 who've not eaten a meal with other church members. Now that's interesting, is what's that reveal? Well, that's not Bible, but statistics can reveal truth. I think that when we come together, there's something of inspiration that happens. We inspire one another. We motivate one another. We encourage one another to keep the faith and let's go and let's do this thing together. And things are better because we're together. Acts 2, 46. We see it in another passage coming up here that we'll be speaking on uh, 
more in the coming weeks. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So that, that was important in the early days. I have a sense that it's still important and, and that we'll be a better, more dynamic church if we're there loving and being with one another. And the fourth thought that I see in here, it's, a, it's really a principle. Acts 2.42 reveals that they were devoted to pray together. They were devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four dynamics that you can do without, you just won't do near as well without as a believer. Can't do without Jesus. He's got to be in your heart. But when these things are, when you're, when you're hitting on all cylinders, there's four of them here. You miss one of those cylinders, you, life doesn't go well, your car doesn't work right, and you can get stranded on the road more often. When we're hitting on all cylinders, this, this whole abundant life, Acts 10.10, 10, he's come that we might have life and have it abundantly. When does it kick in? When, when we start hitting on these cylinders, he won't make us, but he's planned it for us. Are you realizing the importance of prayer in your life? It unleashes the works of God in your family and to those around you. Pastor Roger spoke of it, but this, uh, this insert called Seven, in just a, a couple weeks, will be involved with a prayer and fasting week that's going on all around the Portland area. We'll have... From 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning for those seven days, prayer stations where we're going to invite you all to come in in the morning. And we're going to pray over the seven mountains of influence, that series that I did recently with family and education and, 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 and our, our community. It, it, it'll all be there to pray for. And we're going to pray for our church. But not only for those things happening around us, we're gathering with hundreds of churches in the Portland area to believe for revival in this Northwest, this portion of the country that needs the light of Jesus to shine so greatly. And we're gonna gather at some churches with them on e- in the evening and we're gonna pray with them. We're gonna see other pastors that are dynamic and they, they are into these things that we talk about today, but we're all gonna lift up Jesus. We're gonna pray and believe for great things. So check out that thing and join us in these coming weeks. We'll give you more information later. Acts 424 says when they heard this, that church was being persecuted in this passage right here. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And here's what they, so they're all praying together here. That's the principle. They prayed together. They said, Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And it's a good way to start prayer, reminding yourself of the greatness and, and the awesome power of God. And after they prayed, verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken because when you pray, results happen. God unleashes his power. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Prayer unleashes the work of God in our lives and through our lives. The early church not only prayed, they prayed expecting God to act. And a healthy church knows that that if they're too busy to pray, there'll be a great amount of activity with little accomplished. Boy, I don't want to be that church where we got a lot going, but we don't have a lot of God's spirit moving. God wants us to be people of prayer. He wants this church to be a church filled with prayer. Not only are we doing this seven, but coming down the road in January, we'll be doing 40 days of prayer and fasting to start off the new year this year. 
Because we're believing God to do amazing things in and through our lives. Romans 15.30 says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Now, that's the Apostle Paul. This guy wrote two-thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's a pretty spiritual dude, and he's saying, would you join me in praying for me in my struggle? Well, there you have it. If you're, you, know, you can't get much more spiritual than him, and he has struggles, and he needs help in prayer. So I want to end talking about this thought of praying for one another. I thought of um, the paralytic being let down through the roof. Do you remember that in the, in the Bible, the New Testament? Um, his friends, people were pressing in. There was a crowd around the house. They couldn't get their paralytic friend to Jesus for prayer. So they went up on the roof they tore the roof apart. Can you imagine the dirt and grass falling from the roof as they opened that hole? And they made such a big hole that they let their friend, who was the paralytic, down to Jesus in a room that Jesus was in. And Jesus prayed for him and he was healed. But I, what I find fascinating about that passage is uh, Jesus didn't say to the man, because of your faith, you've been made well today. He said, because of the faith of your friends, you've been made well today. Well, if we're honest, I mean, I'd like to be so spiritual that every thought I had was correct and right and good. But I even have thoughts that I have to take captive. And if I don't take them captive, I can just spiral into discouragement. I imagine you could be doing things just right. We see Elijah and others discouraged at times in the Bible. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Sometimes I don't even know how to pray for myself. And I trust that the Holy Spirit knows how to do that and can do it through me to some degree, but when you're hurting, here's what I wish you would do, because all of us hurt at times, like Paul, we have a struggle. If you are closely connected to two or three believers that were your good friends, that know you, that love you, that, that wouldn't gossip about you, that would be concerned and, and lift you up in prayer, that would make a dynamic difference. If you will share where your needs are and that you need prayer, in times where you're, you're hurting. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens on Facebook they don't like. I don't like it when people get on there and talk bad about their husbands or their wives. I don't like it when, when they gossip. But one of the things I love about Facebook is when I see something that says just simply this, need prayer. I love that. Because you'll see 20 or 30 people saying praying right now. May not even know what it is. But when we are vulnerable enough and when we believe in prayer enough to say, would you pray for me? Sometimes I just, I just can't think right. I need other people to help me think right by praying me through. Sometimes I can't lift this load by myself, and you can't either. Sometimes it's an attack from the enemy that needs to be driven back because it's a spiritual thing. It's not even an action that you brought about that was bad. It's an attack from the enemy. And prayers cover us, bless us, release us. And we need to pray for one another. I love this story. It's from another church, a pastor named Fred Siegel from uh, Indiana, Indianapolis. And he tells a story about someone who was in his church, a man named Mark Knudsen. This happened on August 28th, 1993. Mark was diagnosed with an extremely aggressive form of cancer. When diagnosed, he was already in the latter stages and, and was given only a short time to live. And Mark's biggest Worries were not for himself, but for his wife and his two kids. Who would take care of them? 
Would there be people to love and support them throughout this ordeal? By September 19th, just a couple months later, his worries were taken care of. The Knutson family heard a, a voice outside their home, a noise. And they opened the window and they saw the street filled with Christian friends from their church. So many of them that they literally physically circled the property, their home, and they joined hands. A circle of prayer around Mark and his family while he was going through this terribly difficult time and they prayed. You talk about being strengthened and encouraged in their hearts. Not only that, but for the next couple of months, they would meet in the backyard, up to 20 people a day. And they wouldn't go in and bother the family because Mark was really bad with this sickness, this cancer. But they would sign their names to something so they could know that they were there. They would send encouraging cards and they were covering this family. They let the Knutson family know that they were loved. Their display of love continued through a six-week period with all these things. They did more than pray. They, they gave encouragement. They helped with transportation and the other needs of the family, the children, the wife. The Knutson said, we truly felt a hedge of love encircling our home. Wow. If we could just be that church that would care for people, then we'd be the church of Jesus. If we could be those who understood that prayer would make a difference for those families in need, if we could be those that would know that today them, yesterday my friend, tomorrow me, if we would know that the body of Christ needs to be connected and that prayer is a huge part covering one another in these ways. Well, Mark didn't make it. He died. But before he died, he realized that his family would be fine because the church of Jesus Christ was there, that he would see them again someday in heaven. And some people say, well, don't you believe in in faith and healing? Of course I do. I've prayed for a bunch of people that have been healed, and so so have others here. Inexplicably, supernaturally, people are healed when we pray. But I want to remind you that in Hebrews 11, called the faith chapter, that they were living... Um, uh, by faith all the way through that chapter but in the first part of the chapter it's Abraham and Noah and those who prayed and by faith they had miracles they saw it and it happened miraculous but in the second part of the chapter there were people the Bible says that they were living by faith when they died they were sawn in two they were martyred as Christians and the world was not worthy of them what I want you to know is that's the faith chapter and it takes every facet in that's called the faith chapter that we pray by faith and we believe and we see miracles, but the other side of the coin, that's one side of the coin, the other side is we pray by faith and when something doesn't happen, we trust God anyway. He knows more than we do. The Bible says it's appointed for man uh, once to die and then comes judgment. There's an appointment for all of us. I can't explain all these things, but I know this. You keep trusting, you keep loving, you keep praying and all of God's power is unleashed in amazing ways. This story made an impact on the Knutson family, but the ending for me was powerful because there were neighbors who were watching as these people gathered to pray every day. And as they saw this display of love, the church loving one another, and isn't that what the Bible says? They'll know we're Christians by the way we love one another. I find that interesting because I would guess that they would know we're Christians because we love them, but that's not what it says because we love one another. Loving them 
you know, I'm for it. And, I, and the Bible speaks of it. But this passage says, by the way we love one another. And several people in that neighborhood came to Christ because they watched the church love this Knutson family. We need each other. We need to be devoted to this teaching and encourage one another in it. We need to be in fellowship, sharing life together. We need to break bread together. We need to pray for ourselves, for the church, for our area, and for one another. And when these dynamics happen, look out. Because the church will rise up to show who Jesus really is. Romans 12, 12 says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, Practice hospitality. 